Section 3 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Demosthenes. Chapters 21 through 31. At this time, however, when their disaster fell upon the Greeks, the orators of the opposing party assailed Demosthenes and prepared reckonings and indictments against him. But the people not only absolved him from these, nay, they actually continued to honor him and invited him again as a loyal man to take part in public affairs. Consequently, when the bones of those who had fallen at Cheronea were brought home for burial, they assigned to him the honor of pronouncing the eulogy over the men, nor did they show a base or ignoble spirit under the calamity which had befallen them, as Theopompus writes in his inflated style, but by the special honor and respect which they paid to their counselor, they made it manifest that they did not repent of the counsels he had given them. The oration then was pronounced by Demosthenes, but to the decrees which he proposed he would not put his own name, but rather those of his friends, one after the other, avoiding his own as inauspicious and unfortunate, until he once more took courage upon Philip's death. And Philip died, surviving his success at Cheronea, only a short time, and this, it would seem, was foretold by the last verse of the oracle, quote, Tears are for the conquered there, and for the conqueror, death. End quote. Now, Demosthenes had secret intelligence of Philip's death, and by way of inspiring the Athenians with courage for the future, he came forth to the council with a glad countenance, declaring that he had had a dream which led him to expect some great blessing for Athens. And not long afterwards, the messengers came with tidings of Philip's death. At once, then, the Athenians proceeded to make thank-offerings for glad tidings and voted a crown for Posanias. And Demosthenes came forth in public dressed in a splendid robe and wearing a garland on his head, although his daughter had died only six days before, as Ascanius says, who rails at him for this and denounces him as an unnatural father. And yet Ascanius himself was of a weak and ungenerous nature, if he considered mournings and lamentations as the signs of an affectionate spirit, but condemned the bearing of such losses serenely and without repining. For my own part, I cannot say that it was honorable in the Athenians to crown themselves with garlands and offer sacrifices to the gods on the death of a king who, in the midst of his successes, had treated them so mildly and humanely in their reverses. For besides provoking the indignation of the gods, it was also an ignoble thing to honor him while he was alive, and make him a citizen of Athens. But when he had fallen by another's hand, to set no bounds to their joy, nay, to leap, as it were, upon the dead, and sing paeans of victory, as if they themselves had wrought a deed of valor. However, for leaving his domestic misfortunes and tears and lamentations to the women, and going about such business as he thought advantageous to the city, I commend Demosthenes, 
and I hold it to be part of a statesmanlike and manly spirit to keep ever in view of the good of the community, to find support for domestic sorrows and concerns in the public welfare, and to preserve one's dignity far more than the actors do when they take the parts of kings and tyrants. For these, as we see in the theaters, neither weep nor laugh according to their own inclinations, but as the subject of the action demands. And apart from these considerations, if it is our duty not to allow the unfortunate to lie comfortless in his sorrow, but to address him with cheering words and turn his thoughts to pleasanter things, like those who tell people with sore eyes to withdraw their gaze from bright and hard colors and fix it upon those which are soft and green, how can a man obtain better consolation for his domestic griefs than by blending them with the general welfare of a prosperous country, thus making the better things obscure the worse? These things, then, I have been led to say on seeing that many have their hearts softened to effeminate pity by this discourse of Ascanes. The cities of Greece, under the incitations of Demosthenes, now formed themselves into a league again. The Thebans, whom Demosthenes had helped to provide with arms, fell upon their Macedonian garrison and slew many of them, while the Athenians made preparations to go to war along with them. Demosthenes reigned supreme in the assembly, and wrote letters to the king's generals in Asia, stirring them up to make war upon Alexander, whom he called a boy and a Margites. When, however, Alexander had settled the affairs of his own country, and came in person with his forces into Boeotia, prone lay the courage of the Athenians, and Demosthenes was extinguished. While the Thebans, betrayed by their allies, fought by themselves and lost their city. Then, in the midst of the great confusion which reigned at Athens, Demosthenes was chosen and sent with others as an ambassador to Alexander, but fearing the wrath of the king, he turned back at Scythiron and abandoned the embassy. Then, straight away, Alexander sent to Athens a demand for the surrender to him of ten of their popular leaders. According to Idomeneus and Juris, but according to the most and most reputable writers, only eight, namely Demosthenes, Polyctus, Ephialtes, Lysurgus, Morocles, Damon, Callisthenes, and Charidemus. It was on this occasion that Demosthenes told the Athenians the story of how the sheep surrendered their dogs to the wolves comparing himself and his fellow orators to dogs fighting in defense of the people, and calling Alexander the Macedonian archwolf. Moreover, he said further, just as a grain merchant sell their whole stock by means of a few kernels of wheat, which they carry about with them in a bowl as a sample, so in surrendering us you unwittingly surrender also yourselves, all of you. Such, then, is the account which Aristobulus of Cassandrea has given. The Athenians were deliberating on this demand, and were at a loss how to treat it, when Demades, for five talents which he had received from the men demanded, agreed to go on an embassy to the king and entreat him in their behalf, either because he relied on the friendship of Alexander, or because he expected to find him sated, like a lion glutted with slaughter. At any rate, Demades persuaded the king to let the men off, 
and reconciled him with the city. So, when Alexander went back to Macedonia, Demades and his associates were in high power, but Demosthenes acted a humble part. It is true that when Aegis the Spartan was active in revolt, Demosthenes once more made a feeble effort in his support, but then he cowered down since the Athenians would not join in the uprising. Aegis fell in battle and the Lacedaemonians were crushed. It was at this time that the indictment against Stesiphon in the matter of the crown came on for trial. It had been prepared in the archonship of Chironidas, a little before the Battle of Chironia, but came on for trial ten years later in the archonship of Aristophan. It became the most celebrated of all public causes, not only on account of the fame of the orators, but also because of the noble conduct of the judges, who, though the prosecutors of Demosthenes were then at the height of power and acting in the interests of Macedonia, would not vote against him but acquitted him so decisively that Ascanius did not get a fifth part of their ballots. Consequently, Ascanius forsook the city at once, and spent the rest of his life as a teacher of rhetoric in Rhodes and Ionia. Not long afterwards, Harpalus came out of Asia to Athens. He had run away from Alexander because he was conscious that his prodigality had led him into criminal practices, and because he was afraid of his master, who was now become harsh to his friends. But after he had taken refuge with the Athenian people and put himself in their hands with his ships and his treasures, the other orators at once fixed their longing eyes upon his wealth, came to his aid, and tried to persuade the Athenians to receive and save the suppliant. But Demosthenes, in the beginning, counseled them to drive Harpalus away, and to beware lest they plunge the city into war upon an unnecessary and unjust ground. A few days afterwards, however, while they were making an inventory of the treasure, Harpalus saw that Demosthenes was eyeing with pleasure a cup of barbarian make, with a keen appreciation of its fashion and of the ornamental work upon it. He therefore bade him poise it in his hand and see how heavy the gold was. And when Demosthenes was amazed at its weight and asked how much it would amount to, Harpalus smiled and said, For you it will amount to twenty talents. And as soon as night was come, he sent him the cup with the twenty talents. Now, Harpalus was skillful in detecting the character of a man who had a passion for gold by means of the look that spread over his face and the glances of his eyes. For Demosthenes could not resist, but was overcome by the bribe, and now that he had, as it were, admitted a garrison into his house, promptly went over to the side of Harpalus. Next day, after swathing his neck carefully in woolen bandages, he went forth into the assembly, and when he was urged to rise and speak, he made signs that his voice was ruined. The wits, however, by way of raillery, declared that the orator had been seized overnight not with an ordinary quincy, but with a silver quincy. And afterwards, when the whole people learned that he had been bribed, and would not permit him when he wished it to have a hearing and make his defense, but were angry and raised a tumult against him, someone rose and said jokingly, 
Men of Athens, will you not listen to the man who holds the cup? At that time, then, they sent Harpalus away from the city, and fearing lest they should be called to account for the monies which the orators had seized, they made a zealous search for it, and went round to the houses on the quest, except that of Callicles, the son of Arenides, for his house was the only one which they would not allow to be searched, since he was a newly married man and his bride was within, as Theopompus relates. But Demosthenes put a bold face on the matter and introduced a bill providing that the case should be referred for investigation to the council of Areopagus, and that those should be brought to trial who were found guilty there. He was himself, however, among the first condemned by the council, and came before the court for trial, where he was sentenced to a fine of fifty talents and delivered over to prison in default of payment. But out of shame at the charge under which he lay, as he says, and owing to the weakness of his body, which could not endure confinement, he ran away through the carelessness of some of his keepers and the connivance of others. At any rate, we are told that when he was in flight at a short distance from the city, he learned that some of the citizens who were his enemies were in pursuit of him, and therefore wished to hide himself. And when they called upon him loudly by name, and came up near to him, and begged him to accept from them provision for his journey, declaring that they were bringing money from home for this very purpose, and were pursuing him only in order to get it to him, and when at the same time they exhorted him to be of good courage, and not to be pained at what had happened, Demosthenes broke out all the more into cries of grief, saying, Surely I must be distressed to leave a city where my enemies are as generous as I can hardly find friends to be in another. And he bore his exile without fortitude, taking up his quarters in Aegina and Troxen for the most part, and looking off towards Attica with tears in his eyes so that utterances of his are on record which are not generous or consonant with his spirited efforts as a statesman. We are told, namely, that as he was leaving the city, he lifted up his hands towards the Acropolis and said, O potent guardian of the city Athena, how, pray, canst thou take delight in those three most intractable beasts, the owl, the serpent, and the people? Moreover, when young men came to visit and converse with him, he would try to deter them from public life, saying that if true roads had been presented to him in the beginning, one leading to the Bema and the assembly, and the other straight to destruction, and if he could have known beforehand the evils attendant on a public career, namely fears, hatreds, calumnies, and contentions, he would have taken the road which led directly to death. But while he was still undergoing the exile of which I have spoken, Alexander died, and the Greek states proceeded to form a league again, while Leosthenes was displaying deeds of valor and walling Antipater up in Lamia, where he held him in siege. Accordingly, the orators Pythias and Calamedon, called the Stag Beetle, fled from Athens and joined the party of Antipater and traveling about with the regent's friends and ambassadors tried to prevent the Greeks from revolting or attaching themselves to Athens. But Demosthenes, joining himself to the ambassadors from Athens, 
used his utmost efforts in helping them to induce the cities to unite in attacking the Macedonians and expelling them from Greece. And Flyarchus tells us that in Arcadia, Pythias and Demosthenes actually fell to abusing one another in an assembly, the one speaking in behalf of the Macedonians, the other in behalf of the Greeks. Pythias, we are told, said that just as we think that a house into which ass's milk is brought must certainly have some evil in it, so also a city must of necessity be diseased into which an Athenian embassy comes. Whereupon Demosthenes turned the illustration against him by saying that ass's milk was given to restore health, and that the Athenians came to bring salvation to the sick. At this conduct, the Athenian people were delighted and voted that Demosthenes might return from exile. The decree was brought in by Demon of Paeania, who was a cousin of Demosthenes, and a trireme was sent to Aegina to fetch him home. When he set out to go up to the city from Piraeus, not an archon or a priest was missing, and all the rest of the people also met him in a body and welcomed him er eagerly. It was said at this time, too, as Demetrius the Magnesian says, that he lifted his hands toward heaven and blessed himself for that day, since he was coming home from exile more honorably than Alcibiades did, for he had persuaded not forced his fellow citizens to welcome him. It is true that his pecuniary fine remained standing against him, for it was not lawful to remit an assessment by act of grace but they found a device to evade the law. It was their custom, namely, in the case of a sacrifice to Zeus the Savior, to pay a sum of money to those who prepared and adorned the altar, and they now gave Demosthenes the contract to make these preparations for fifty talents, which was just the amount of his assessment. However, he did not enjoy his native city for long after his return from exile, but the cause of the Greece was speedily crushed, and in the month of Medigenian, the battle at Cranon took place. In that of Boedramian, the Macedonian garrison entered Muntia, and in that of Pinapsian, Demosthenes died in the following manner. When Antipater and Cratyrus were reported to be advancing upon Athens, Demosthenes and his associates succeeded in escaping by stealth from the city, and the people, on motion of Demades, passed sentence of death upon them. Since they had dispersed themselves to different places, Antipater sent his soldiers about to arrest them, under the command of Archias, the so-called exile hunter. This man was a native of Thurii, and the story goes that he was once a tragic actor. Indeed, it is recorded that Polus of Aegina, the best actor of his time, was a pupil of his. But Hermippus states that Archias was one of the pupils of Lacritus, the rhetorician, while Demetrius says that he belonged to the school of Anaximenes. This Archias, then, finding that Hyperides, the orator, and Aristonicus of Marathon, and Hemeraeus, the brother of Demetrius the Philerian, had taken refuge in the sanctuary of Isaias at Aegina, hailed them away, and sent them to Antipater at Cleonae. There they were also put to death, and Hyperides, it is said, 
also had his tongue cut out. Moreover, on learning that Demosthenes had taken sanctuary in the temple of Poseidon at Caluria, Archias sailed across to the island in small boats, and after landing with Thracian spearmen, tried to persuade the fugitive to leave the temple and go with him to Antipater, assuring them that he would suffer no harsh treatment. But it chanced that Demosthenes, in his sleep the night before, had seen a strange vision. He dreamed, namely, that he was acting in a tragedy and contending with Archias for the prize, and that although he acquitted himself well and won the favor of the audience, his lack of stage decorations and costumes cost him the victory. Therefore, after Archias had said many kindly things to him, Demosthenes, just as he sat, looked steadfastly at him and said, O Archias, thou didst never convince me by thine acting, nor wilt thou now convince me by thy promises. And now when Archias began to threaten him angrily, Now, said he, thou utterest the language of the Macedonian oracle, but a moment ago thou wert acting apart. Wait a little, then, that I may write a message to my family. With these words he retired into the temple, and taking a scroll, as if about to write, he put his pen into his mouth and bit it, as he was wont to do when thinking what he should write, and kept it there some time, then covered and bent his head. The spearmen then, who stood at the door, laughed at him for playing the coward, and called him weak and unmanly. But Archias came up and urged him to rise, and reiterating the same speeches as before, promised him a reconciliation with Antipater. But Demosthenes, now conscious that the poison was affecting and overpowering him, uncovered his head, and fixing his eyes upon Archias, Thou canst not be too soon now, said he, in playing the part of Crayon in the tragedy, and casting this body out without burial. But I, O beloved Poseidon, will depart from thy sanctuary while I am still alive, whereas Antipater and the Macedonians would not have left even thy temple undefiled. So speaking, and bidding someone to support him, since he was now trembling and tottering, he had no sooner gone forth and passed by the altar than he fell, and with a groan gave up the ghost. As for the poison, Ariston says he took it from the pen, as I have said, but a certain Papus, from whom Hermippus took his story, says that when he had fallen by the side of the altar, there was found written in the scroll the beginning of a letter, Demosthenes to Antipater, and nothing more, and that when men were amazed at the suddenness of his death, the Thracians who had stood at the door told the story that he took the poison into his hand from a cloth and put it to his mouth and swallowed it, and that they themselves, strange to say, had supposed that what he swallowed was gold, and that the little maid who served him, when inquiries were made by Archias, said that Demosthenes had long worn that cloth girdle as a safeguard against his enemies. And even Eratosthenes himself says that Demosthenes kept the poison in a hollow bracelet, and that he wore this bracelet as an ornament upon his arm. But the divergent stories of all the others who have written about the matter, and they are very many, need not be recounted, except 
that Democartes, the relative of Demosthenes, says that in his opinion it was not due to poison, but to the honor and kindly favor shown him by the gods, that he was rescued from the cruelty of the Macedonians by a speedy and painless death. And he died on the sixteenth of the month Pianetian, the most gloomy day of the Sesmophoria, which the women observe by fasting in the temple of the goddess. It was to this man, a little while after his death, that the Athenian people paid worthy honor by erecting his statue in bronze, and by decreeing that the eldest of his house should have public maintenance in the Pyrtanium. And this celebrated inscription was inscribed upon the pedestal of his statue, Quote, if thy strength had only been equal to thy purposes, Demosthenes, never would the Greeks have been ruled by a Macedonian Ares. End quote. Of course, those who say that Demosthenes himself composed these lines in Caluria, as he was about to put the poison to his lips, talk utter nonsense. Now, a short time before I took up my abode in Athens, the following incident is said to have occurred. A soldier who had been called to an account by his commander put what little gold he had into the hands of this statue of Demosthenes. It stood with its fingers interlaced, and hard by grew a small plane tree. Many of the leaves from this tree, whether the wind accidentally blew them thither, or whether the depositor himself took this way of concealing his treasure, lay clustering together about the gold and hid it for a long time. At last, however, the man came back, found his treasure intact, and an account of the matter was spread about, whereupon the wits of the city took for a theme the incorruptibility of Demosthenes, and vied with one another in their epigrams. As for Demades, he had not long enjoyed his growing reputation when vengeance for Demosthenes brought him into Macedonia, whose people he had disgracefully flattered only to be by them justly put to death. He had been obnoxious to them even before this, but now fell under a charge from which there was no escape. A letter of his, namely, leaked out, in which he had urged Perdiccas to seize Macedonia and deliver the Greeks who, he said, were fastened to it only by an old and rotten thread, meaning Antipater. And when Dinarchus the Corinthian denounced him for this, Cassander flew into a rage and slew the son of Demades as he stood close by his father's side, and then ordered that Demades should be likewise killed. Demades was now learning amid his extremist misfortunes that traitors sell themselves first, a truth of which Demosthenes had often assured him, but which he would not believe. And so, Socius, thou hast the promised life of Demosthenes, drawn from such written or oral sources as I could find. End of section three.